Chapter 20. Harvest. Six months elapsed before Princess was restored to her former blessings. During all that time, they heard nothing from the gang of twenty-two. Sam hired a full-time bodyguard to stay near his family twenty-four hours a day. It made them all feel better, but was probably insufficient to thwart any real attempt on their safety. That came... that... that same September, Sam was called as first counselor in the bishopric. The calling both thrilled and frightened him. He knew he was willing to do anything for the Lord, and yet he was not so sure he could summon enough inspiration to do it right. Old feelings from childhood, feelings of fear and inferior <laughs> inferiority plagued him. For over a week, he fought random impulses to decline the offered blessing. Yet each time he prayed, he felt increasingly that once again the Lord would work a miracle that would make him adequate to the calling. After all, if God was able of these stones to raise up seed unto Abraham, as John the Baptist said, then God was able of Sam Ahoy to raise up a humble servant of the Lord. Sam knew it would have to occur in spite of him, not because of him. His weaknesses were too great and his capacity too small to just change into a worthy man. He desperately needed the Lord to lay his hand upon his shoulder and give him strength he did not possess of his own. Perhaps the thing that worried him most was that he might just blunder ahead and do things that might prove harmful to those he was meaning to bless. With his calling came a startling glimpse into the tumultuous affairs of the world. Ward. He was suddenly made aware of problems he had no previous idea were occurring. It almost seemed as if half the ward was having marital problems and the other half was dying of some disease. Of the few who had nothing especially wrong, most were unemployed. He had to struggle to pull his heart out of a sense of despair. For the first time in his life, he saw the church as a hospital rather than a divinely appointed country club. Of the many people with special needs was the Fowler family. Brother Fowler was a faithful brother who was nearly always away from his family driving truck. When he was at home, he seemed to have little energy for much more than long hours of watching television. Yet he responded willingly to any church assignment and attended to his home teaching faithfully. Sister Fowler was overweight by nearly a hundred pounds. It was a strain for her to walk from one room to the other. She seemed afflicted by the ailment for a month. Her most pressing illness was multiple sclerosis, which occasionally flared up and sapped her of energy and control over limbs. She had brought three children into the world, all with severe handicaps. Their oldest girl was almost blind, deformed in the face and arms, and socially inept. Their next oldest boy was physically normal, but mentally little more than half his age. Their youngest was perfectly, or physically perfect and unusually bright. He was also unusually active, literally bouncing off the walls and furniture. No one could control him, certainly not his mother, who at times could barely move. Yet this little one was their sweetheart and their family's old only claim to any vestige of normalcy. To make matters worse, the Fowlers were outcasts in a quiet way. The adults of the world ward were friendly toward them, but none were friends. Perhaps inwardly, most felt superior to the Fowlers and silently believed this family's misfortunes were their own doings or the results of poor diet, poor work ethic, or poor genetics. Whatever the reason, they were what might be termed accepted but not truly embraced by the word ward. The children were treated with contempt by their peers. When no adult was present, they were persecuted, physically tormented, or mentally harassed. If their personal problems were not sufficient to cripple them, the emotional abuse they received was more than sufficient to complete the debilitation. Sam's first, <laughs> Sam's first special assignment as a member of the bishopric was to fellowship the Fowlers. His assignment included special emphasis on helping the ward accept them, as well as assisting them to fit in. Sam and Princess visited the Fowler's home together several times. Princess became nauseated the first time they walked into the home. The halls were stacked from floor to ceiling with newspapers, books, boxes, car parts, and dirty laundry. The smell of cat urine was so caustic that even Sam felt pressure rising in his throat. He could not help but wonder how anyone could be healthy in such an atmosphere. The kitchen was piled high with dirty dishes and empty pizza boxes, while the kitchen floor was not even visible underneath the grime and litter. The living room was piled deep in trash and dirty clothing. Obviously, piles of cats and dog droppings lay in the corners of the room. The only clear spot of drab green carpet, probably not its original color, was between a new-looking leather recliner and the TV, which were also the nicest and newest pieces of furniture. Four dogs barked and danced around Sam and Princess, jumping up to put stinking paws on their chest. 
The fowlers seemed to think this cute and made no attempt to restrain them. Numerous cats climbed and clawed everywhere one looked. Brother Fowler occupied the recliner directly in front of the TV. He alternatively yelled at the kids, the cats, and his wife, and spoke lovingly to the dogs as the TV blasted a dozen decibels above the threshold of pain. Princess flatly refused to go with Sam a third time. It did seem futile, as he could not carry on a conversation with anyone while there. The only discussions were held during commercials and usually centered on the plot of the show, movies, playing at the theater, or would he like a cat to take home? In the beginning, Sam truly wanted to help them. As time went on, he found them resistant to his urgings, suggestions of ways they could fit in, and easily offended by any suggestion regarding cleanliness, hygiene, or health. Slowly, Sam felt his attitude being battered by what seemed impossible odds. Sadly, Sam was on the verge of concluding it was impossible to make any positive progress with the Fowlers when his heart was changed in an unexpected way. Four days before Christmas, the Fowler's home caught fire and burned to the ground. The fire could have been started by a thousand things. Their home was a fire trap. Oddly, the fire started from the electrical cord going to the TV where it crossed a cat's latrine. The constant saturation of caustic urine had finally eaten through the insulation of the cord. Sam rushed to their home in time to watch the firemen put out the last of the flames. Even the burning rubble put off a nauseating stench. Sam noticed that several of the firemen had wrapped clothes or cloths around their faces to fend off the odor of burning filth. When Sam arrived, the Fowler family was huddled in their only remaining possession, the 1964 Dodge van that no longer had an engine. They had run from their burning home in their nightclothes and had sought shelter from the blaze and the unrelenting cold in their van. They had been kept warm by the heat of their burning home. Sam found them in an agony of grief. Their middle son, Anthony, had not escaped the fire and was lost. Sam had never seen such grief, such complete, unrelenting anguish. No words came to him. No comfort seemed possible in the face of such loss. The Fowler's plight was real and immediate. They had nothing left. In every sense, they were helpless, homeless, naked in the cold of night, and nearly friendless. Sam pondered the possibilities in his mind. They were few, pitifully few. There were no relatives to call on, no friends to lean on, no insurance to claim, no place to go, and little hope of finding one. Bishop Dowling arrived while Sam was still trying to comfort them. Others came from the ward to see what happened and to offer assistance. A team was formed to find housing for the displaced family. One brother offered a small camp trailer sitting beside his home. It was small and it would need to have electricity and heat hooked up, but it was available. Another offered a garage with a bedroom that he and his wife had occupied while they were building their home beside it. Someone suggested renting a, lo a hotel room, although thought they should contact the Salvation Army. A thoughtful brother brought a large army tent and began pitching it in the front lawn of the burned home. Others saw his efforts and helped. Soon the tent was erected, a van arrived stuffed with clothing gathered from who knows where, and sisters began scuttling around searching for specific sized clothes. In a short time, the displaced family was clothed. Sam watched all this with a sense of wonder and discomfort. While there were many people pitching in to help, they were working to fix the problem and return home. Everything he saw happen, happening seemed somewhat less than what Sam felt this destitute family truly needed. After a while, the crowd of people began to dissipate. Vague offers of further help were often expressed just as the people walked away. Sam remained unsatisfied, yet able unable to think of anything more to do. While he was in the midst of making efforts to find them a running car, his mom and dad pulled up in their motorhome. There was barely room for the big old bus amidst all the cars, but Jim found a place. Sam watched in quiet appreciation as the two people he most admired emerged from the bus, walked directly to the Fowers, and hustled them into the bus. Before anyone fully comprehended what had occurred, Jim was backing away. With a roar of diesel fumes, their problem family had disappeared into the night. The remaining volunteers began taking down the tent with a defeated air. There seemed to be a disappointment that their stopgap assistance had been upstaged in a way. Sam thought it most odd that a few seemed to understand what had just happened. To Sam's thinking, the Lord had just sent angels to assist his children in their desperate need. Grandpa and Grandma Mahoy rearranged their home, their lives, and their finances to make a place for the Fowlers. 
They wrapped their love around this lost family so completely that their only grief was for the loss of their son. Sam visited his parents in the next day and found their big home churning with orderly chaos. Grandma Mahoy immediately changed their diet to one of wholesome food. Their guests were too modest to comment about the nearly total absence of sugar from their diet and too astounded to complain when their health and energy radically improved. Young Bobby had a radical change in a mere few days. After a week of crying himself to sleep, begging for candy, and severe temper tantrums, he accepted his new diet and quietly changed into a pleasant little boy. Their salvation came partly in the fact that the Fowlers were economically destitute and could not buy a single item of candy for him, for they surely would have done so just to shut him up. Grandma quietly restrained him, taught him, disciplined him with love, and doused him with a glass of cold water whenever he threw a tantrum. When young Bobby felt the need to explode, he did it as far away from Grandma Mahoy as possible. The fits of rage invariably ended suddenly when he heard the water running in the kitchen. When the change came, it was so quiet, sweet, and unexpected, at least to the Fowlers, and permanent. Permanent, that is, as long as Bobby stayed completely away from sugar of any kind. Grandma utterly compute completely refused to let anyone in her kitchen, and the result was that the Fowlers had no choice but to eat wholesome food. They found themselves unavoidably, unexpectedly, and perhaps unhappily what they considered to be almost vegetarians. Their former diet had been largely fried meat in hot grease. Their new diet, by comparison, was very little meat, usually in a thick stew or gravy. Grandma owned a big old skillet, but its only function in life was to fry eggs and zucchini. Yet when Sister Fowler unexpectedly lost 15 pounds and Brother Fowler found himself brimming with energy, they were very vocal in their acceptance of their new lifestyle. Three days after their arrival, Sam's parents' TV mysteriously broke. Brother Fowler soon found himself outside the house pacing with unaccustomed energy. Before many days, he was dr back driving trucks, but that was too sedentary. But even that was too sedentary. He started looking for more energetic work and amazed himself when he found a job in a cabinet shop for a considerably higher wage. It turned out that he loved working with wood and was good at it too. He began a steady climb towards success in his new career. Grandma ruled her home with the same gentle, no-nonsense she had used when Sam was a child. No pets came to stay. No litter touched the floor and stayed. No one ate without also helping clean up. Bathtubs were clean before and after a bath. Spills were wiped up by the spiller, and quarrels were quickly put away with good feelings on both sides. In short, the whole family restarted their lives, and for a time, they all called her Grandma Laura. When the example had been set to a solid gel, she let Sister Fowler into her kitchen. Flattered that Grandma Mahoy trusted her in inner sanctum of her sparkling kitchen, Sister Fowler produced a large a meal largely meeting the criteria of the mistress of the castle. To shorten a rather lengthy tale, the lost family was found, clothed, cleaned, loved, and reborn. When they emerged from their temporary home nearly a year later, they were different people. The change was startling, nearly unbelievable. Most startling of all was that the Fowlers recognized the miracle of their metamorphosis was keenly... <laughs> they recognized it more keenly than anyone else. As they grew, they looked back on their former existence with growing revulsion and loathing. In time, they knelt in prayer together and thanked God for taking away their home so that they could come to know the love of Grandpa and Grandma Mahoy and the joy of their new life. Though this miracle was significant and life-changing, it was in reality very slow. Lessons were learned at a snail's pace, forgotten far faster, and repeated many times. Although the change was miraculous, it was discounted by some in the ward. They attributed the squeaky cleanliness, wrinkle-free clothes, and bright faces to Grandma Mahoy's tireless efforts, not to any true worth on the part of those souls wearing the new smiles. In a way that surprised Sam, the Fowlers recognized this reaction in others as inevitable and refused to be resentful or to blame them. They simply changed and waited patiently for those around them to recognize it, or not, as the case may be. In some ways, they exhibited a higher level of nobility than those to whom these changes were invisible. The Fowlers built a new, larger home on the foundations of their old one. With Brother Fowler's new job and new energy, the family could afford something a little better. Grandpa Jim worked tirelessly for weeks to build the new home alongside his friend. 
Since it was being built out of pocket, Grandpa energetically campaigned for building materials to be donated from local businesses, members, neighbors, and charities. His efforts were rewarded. The materials arrived when needed and the home rose from the ashes of their former flight. They moved into their new home home in early December, just a little short of two years after the fire. Sam spent many hours driving nails beside his father. It was good to have a hammer back in his hand again. He donated a few things as seemed appropriate, like a bathtub, plumbing, and other small things. Even though he could have financed the entire project without any difficulty, Sam chose to give his time and to let others benefit from giving as well. The bulk of the donations came from non-members. When it was ready to occupy, it was a sweet feeling to stand back and look at their new home, painted, carpeted, clean, and very likely to stay that way when the Fowlers moved in. It still needed lots of work, but it was warm, sound, and all theirs. Sam was in charge of the Christmas program for sacrament meeting that year. He worked energetically to arrange everything just right. He wanted this Christmas to be most special and worshipful. Yet, as perfect as every presentation seemed, there was still something missing. He troubled over what it might be to write up to the Saturday before the Christmas program. It was rather late when the phone rang and he was surprised to hear Sister Fowler's voice on the line. She was cheerful, yet somewhat subdued, almost as if she were frightened. He had to coax out of her what was on her mind. Well, you see, Brother Mahoy, it's my oldest daughter, Catherine. She wanted to sing a song at Christmas time for a long time. And you know, she's almost blind and all and not real pretty, she said in a whispered voice. She can just barely read her music by holding it very close to her face. We never felt like people would appreciate her singing, but you see, she's turning 17, and next year she's going away to college. This was a revelation to Sam. He had no idea that Catherine was even in school, let alone looking toward college. Would you like me to put her on the program, he asked. He heard himself ask. Even before she answered, he knew that this was the part that had been missing from the program. He felt his heart rejoice as she replied, Oh, would you? That would just be so wonderful. Thank you. You're just like your parents. They are so special to us, you know. We just love them with all our heart. Why, they loved us like their own and taught us how to be real people. We were like little children playing house, not even knowing how. They saved us. Did you know that? Well, of course you did. We just love them, that's all. Sam thought to himself that everyone should experience being loved so purely by a friend. But rather than commenting on that, he asked, Who will accompany her on the piano? He considered that they might ask him to do it. Why, I will, of course, she ass asserted brightly. I had no idea you played. Well, you couldn't see the piano in our first house. It was always buried under something, but it was there. I taught Catherine this song myself. She can do it pretty good. It will be good for her to finally get to sing the song. We've worked and worked on it. She's so shy, you know. She wants to go to college to study music. Did you know that? No, I didn't. I'm going to put her as the closing number. Is that all right? Oh, gosh, I suppose so. We'll practice some more tonight. There was a moment's silence, and then she said with deep sincerity, You're just like your dad, and hung up. It was the greatest compliment she could have given him. The Christmas program was beautiful. The choir sang like a chorus of angels, and each talk was inspiring. All through the program, Sam felt his suspense growing until he was nearly ready to burst. He had listed the final musical number merely as special musical number, Mary's Lullaby. He had intentionally not listed who would perform. He did this for two reasons. One was to avoid embarrassment should Catherine decide she couldn't do it at the last minute. The second was to forestall the inevitable prejudice that would surround the inclusion of those names on the program. Sam wanted the audience to have as little warning as possible so that they might set aside their preconceptions and see Catherine in a new, positive light. Mary's Lullaby is one of the most beautiful and touching Christmas pieces ever written. It is intended to be sung by a young, motherly woman. It describes Mary's love for her newborn son and talks of her sure knowledge that he is the promised king who would die for his people. She sings a lovely, almost sad, lullaby to the Christ child proclaiming, One day you will be king, but tonight you are mine. Everyone was looking down at their programs to see who would sing the final number as Sister Fowler led her daughter toward the stand. Catherine tipped on the lowest step and a, a deacon snickered. Sister Fowler whispered directions, and they climbed the steps to the stand and walked slowly toward the pulpit. Sister Fowler turned her daughter toward the microphone. It groaned loudly as she pulled it down. 
As she made her way to the piano, Catherine raised a piece of music very close to her face and studied it with what tiny bit of vision she possessed. Sam could see her screwing up her face into a deformed scowl. Even he had to cringe a little and felt himself somewhat repulsed. The poor girl was a long ways from pretty and very nearly painful to look at. Someone coughed rudely, and others whispered too loudly. Sam began to feel annoyed by their unchristian behavior. He and the bishopric were sitting in the audience, or he would have bolted to his feet to stand by her side until she could sing. As it was, she was on her own. Sister Fowler began to play. Her light, sure touch of the piano pleasantly surprised Lamb. He instantly recognized in her one who loved music and for whom the touch of the keys was a magic elixir that washed away hurt and brought peace and joy. The music built to a crescendo, then fell to a hush. Sam waited and prayed. Catherine lifted her chin, twisted her face into a mask of unpleasantness, and sang. With the first chrysalis note, Sam felt his heart leap. The voice that came from that face certainly could not belong to one so deformed. The music floats as peacefully and serenely as love itself. Each note was pure, vibrant, and sure. Her voice was far too mature, far too trained, far too beautiful to belong to one so young. Yet it did, with wonder and joy, it did. The words told a story of Mary's love for her divine son, of a longing too pure to comprehend. For nearly four minutes, Catherine, the deformed, was Mary, the mother of God, and it stunned and electrified everyone in the chapel. Poor little Catherine, unsure, shy, disliked, repelled, and repelling, was for that brief moment in eternity the most beautiful creature on God's earth. Sam listened with joy as each note filled him with love, peace, and sorrow. How sorry he was that he had ever thought of anyone with such inner beauty as ugly. How sorry he was that the song most ultimately, that the song must ultimately end. How sorry he was that he had not known her beauty long before. He opened his eyes and Catherine was different. Her face was aglow with love. Her hands were clenched to her breast as she filled every heart with the perfect love of she who had been chosen first among women. He saw tears of sweet sorrow running down Catherine's cheeks and his own eyes filled. He watched those short stubby arms form a cradle as blind eyes were turned toward the baby who would be the king of all and he knew he felt it he lived it he loved as she loved and it filled him with tragic joy of exquisite beauty the music flowed to an end too soon far too soon sam could not help but hear the sniffles and quiet sighs that once had been whispers of derision total reverent silence waited as sister fowler joined her daughter who had remained motionless where she stood her sightless eyes still gazing at the empty cradle of her arms. Her mother took her elbow, and she smiled. It was a crooked, unbeautiful smile, but it was angelic, and it warmed every soul who beheld it. Breathless silence lay over the audience as the mother and her daughter walked slowly down the steps. Catherine stumbled on the bottom step, and four people jumped up to assist. The same deacon who had snickered earlier was the first there. He gently took Catherine by the other arm, and stayed with her until they found their seats a long moment later. The whole time, he stared in wonder at the little deformed face that housed an angel of uncommon beauty. The twins turned to the same year Connie and Fred Chapman moved next to Princess and Sam. The property already had a home on it when Sam had bought it. Sam and Princess had built their log castle a distance away. In time, Sam had repaired the old home, painted it, and put it up for rent, they didn't need the money, but felt it was a waste to leave the home sitting vacant. Fred was not a member of the church and worked for the Alaska State Troopers. Connie was a baptized member, but hadn't been inside the church since her baptism at age nine. She was a long-legged, blonde-haired, blue-eyed beauty from California. Fred was large-boned and with a prominent brow, square chin, blonde hair, blue eyes, and a ready smile. His face was the type one expects to see snarling inside a linebacker's mask. He was energetic, happy, obviously in love with his wife, and violently disinterested in the church. They had a three-year-old boy, Freddie. From the start, the Chapmans were good renters and good neighbors. Sam rarely began an outdoor project without Fred coming over with an appropriate tool to help. In time, they became friends. In many ways, Fred was the ideal neighbor, even better than was Sam himself. 
Yet whenever the conversation turned to religion, Fred either quietly left for home or simply changed the subject. The connection Fred and Sam shared was mostly the result of being close neighbors and Fred's gregarious nature. They had little else in common. Fred obviously took being neighbors as an obligation he faithfully honored. Connie and Princess shared no such bond. Whatever sparks the friendship might have flared were extinguished in their first meeting, which was cool and brief. Both men were surprised by their wife's reaction. Both felt powerless to change it. With two busy two-year-olds to care for, Princess spent most of her time at home. By now, Sam could handle any situation at work, and Princess simply stopped going to the office. She loved her days at home and pampered her girls until they thought the whole world revolved around their needs. In fact, it did. Sam would have called the girls spoiled, but there was a definite line Princess drew in the invisible sand of their lives that they did not cross without repercussion. They were obedient, polite, and well-behaved. It was true that Princess had drawn the line in a much more lenient spot than Sam might have. Yet this was Princess's world, and he trusted her motherly instinct implicitly. Princess loved her twin daughters absolutely, and Sam doubted that anything in the world could go wrong with their childhood. Even at two years old, Lisa and Bonnie were strikingly beautiful and charming. Their long blonde hair sparkled from repeated brushings, and their baby pink skin shone and smelled of expensive soaps. They often wore identical outfits purchased at JCPenney. Though their clothes were new and cute, they were not expensive. Princess was determined to raise two normal children, not two brats from the royal family. As the weeks and months went by, Princess saw very little of Connie, and there seemed to be no urge to change that situation. What ultimately forced a change was a love affair between Bonnie and three-year-old Freddy. For reasons unfathomable, these two tykes fell hopelessly in love and would not be satisfied apart. Every other day, either Freddy played at their house or Bonnie and Lisa spent time at Freddy's house. An infant love affairs go, theirs was exceptional. They walked around holding hands and often talked of when they would have their own house and their own children. Princess was charmed by it all, as was Freddy's mom. One sunny afternoon, Connie's eyes were puffy as she picked up Freddy. Princess noticed immediately that she had been crying and invited her in. Princess offered her a cup of red bush tea. Connie sipped silently until she finally burst open like an overfilled dam. Fred came home yesterday and said the troopers were going to fire him for taking a bribe. Connie told her in a rush. He pulled over an out-of-state driver for speeding almost two a week ago. The man explained that he was about to miss his plane at the airport, and Freddie let him pay the fine to him. I didn't know that this was against the department policy, but Fred did. He shouldn't have done it, but he was just being nice and was going to the mail. Was going to mail that fine that evening. No one would have known that the man hadn't mailed it himself. He was just doing him a favor. Fred's like that. He likes to help people. He said her voice softening a bit. Princess nodded. Fred was exceptionally accommodating. What went wrong? she asked. Connie's face grew disgusted. Oh, Fred's so disorganized, Connie said with a sad smile. He's always misplacing things. He said he'd just put the envelope on his desk at work and forgot about it. It got buried and forgotten. Oh, dear. Yes, well, the man who paid the fine contacted Fred's captain to see if the fine had been paid, and it hadn't. Without saying anything to Fred, they searched his desk and found the envelope with the money and the ticket. They took it as evidence, suspended him on the spot, and sent him home without pay. Tears began to flow again. Princess brought her a box of tissues. I just don't know what we're going to do. Fred's been with the troopers twelve years. I know he doesn't look old enough, but he has. He has a big retirement buildup, and if he gets fired for cause, he'll lose it all. It's the only thing that he knows how to do, and he won't be able to find a job with another police department for as long as he lives, she wailed, then broke down again and sobbed. Princess's heart went out to Connie. She put her arms around her and held her while she cried. When the tears finally stopped, something had changed between them. Though not strong, a bond had formed. What would you do if you were me? Connie asked if she regained her composure. I'd pray. Princess replied without hesitation. She realized after the fact that she had crossed the no-religion line with her answer. Connie had wanted advice on how to solve the dilemma, not how to satiate her troubled soul. Happily, Connie was not offended. She recognized Princess's response as sincere, not pushy. Pray? I hadn't thought of that. I don't see how it could help, though, she replied heavily. We need a job, not a prayer. 
Princess waited until the correct answer came to her. When it came, it felt right and uncomfortable. Even so, it took all her courage to obey. She slipped to her knees while Kath Connie watched, a look of incomprehension on her face. Come on, I'll show you how, she said. Connie smiled weakly and slipped to the floor beside her. As was her custom, Princess slipped her hand into Connie's hand. Then, unseen by either of them, angels knelt with them, and for the first time in her life Connie heard someone talk to God. It unexpectedly warmed her through and through. When Princess had finished praying, she looked at Connie and nodded, indicating that it was her turn. Connie flinched, yet nodded back and lowered her head. Dear God, she began as if addressing a letter. Until a minute ago, I didn't even know how to talk to you, so you'll have to forgive me that I never tried. Now that we're having this talk, I kind of remember things my mother said about you. I remember that she said, we are your children and you love us. Connie paused here as if the idea had struck her with some force. God, I know what it's like to love my children, and if, you lo if your love is anything like that, I know that you care about Fred and me. So without telling you what I think the answer is, because I really don't know, would you help us out, please? There was a long pause. Just one more thing. Thank you for Princess, and God bless her and the twins. Thank you. Um, uh, Jesus Christ, amen. When Connie looked up at Princess, she was surprised to see tears in her eyes. Princess squeezed her hand. That was beautiful, Connie. I know he heard you. They both stood. I think so, too, Connie admitted. It felt good, and I feel peaceful now. Thanks for showing me that. They walked toward the stairs to collect Freddy. Princess? Yes, Connie? How did you know I wouldn't hate you for trying to show me how to pray? I've certainly told you not to involve me in your religion often enough. Why did you do it? Princess concentrated on climbing the stairs. When she reached the top, she stopped. Have you ever had your conscious urge you to do something that you knew was good? Yeah, I guess so. Sure, yeah, lots of times. Now that I think about it. It was like that, Princess explained. I just knew that it was right, and I always tried to obey my conscience. Why? Most of the time, my conscience just nags me. It's almost like having my mother around telling me what to do. Most of the time, it just annoys me, and I, I ignore it. Well, the conscience we hear is the voice of the Holy Spirit. It comes from God. Connie gasped. No! She exclaimed. Are you sure? That's what the scriptures say, and that's what my experience has been. I am always the happiest when I follow the whisperings of the Holy Spirit. Oh my God! Connie exclaimed, then slapped her hand to her mouth when she realized she had profaned. Sorry, she added contritely. It's just that, well, I had no idea. Oh my word! I'm going to have to do a lot of thinking. If what you say is true, I have been very, very naughty. I have been my mother. I'd spank me. They both laughed at that, and the bond between them deepened. Princess asked, Why would your mother have done if you were naughty? Connie chuckled. She'd probably have done something to try to teach me to behave and listen, and to listen to what she told me. She was an inactive church member, you know, and she really believed it. Even if she didn't go to church, it was obvious her memories of her mother were fond ones. By this time, they had arrived at the girls' room and found them happily playing together with Freddy. They watched for a moment before collecting Freddy. Princess felt the sweet stirrings again and asked, Why wouldn't a loving Heavenly Father do just the same so that we could be happy? I suppose he would. Do you think that that's what this is with Fred's work? A teaching, from, a teaching thing from Heavenly Father? I'm sure of it, Princess replied. Then will it go away after we learn the lesson? I don't know, Connie. It may or it may not. What I do know is that whatever it costs you to learn this lesson, your lives will be much happier afterward. I believe we came to this life to be happy. I believe the only way to be truly happy is to learn the lessons Heavenly Father teaches us, and then our earthly happiness will eventually become eternal happiness. That's a beautiful, beautiful perspective on life, I think, Connie replied softly. I'll think about all this. Thanks, Princess. You're a good friend and a good Christian, she added hastily. Nearly a week passed with little more conversation passing between them than what was needed to shuffle the kids back and forth. Princess felt content to wait for Connie to broach the subject again. When she did, it was with a sense of wonder. They were once again sitting by the big piano sipping redbush tea. Princess, this past week I've thought and thought about what you told me, and each time I ponder what you said, I feel a glowing feeling right here and she 
said, laying her hand upon her breast. I've been anxious to talk to you some more about it, but wasn't sure how to bring it up. I think you just did, Princess said happily. Right, Connie said with a smile. Well, what I did in the meantime was try out what you said. I've been listening very carefully to my conscience, and guess what? It works. I couldn't believe it. Even Fred noticed the difference. She paused here to sip her tea. Her face fell a little. It's demanding, isn't it? Connie observed. What do you mean? Well, my house has never been cleaner. All my laundry's done. I've been reading the Bible every evening. I've been extra loving with Fred, and I'm exhausted, she said emphatically. But you're happy, Princess appended. Absolutely. I've never been so filled with peace in my life. I can't remember a time when my life was so fulfilling, so together. Fred's convinced that I'm pregnant. I got like this when I was first pregnant with Freddie. They laughed again. Connie grew sober, set her cup aside. Something else happened, something I don't understand. What was that, Connie? Princess asked with concern. Well, I have a cousin who lives in Talkeetna. She's the family rebel. She's single and has two kids by two different men she never married. She lives on welfare and is a drug addict. She pays for her addiction by selling herself to men. She lives in a filthy little apartment. Wow, I feel so sorry for her, Princess said unhappily. Connie shrugged. I never have. She chose her life and did it against her own common sense and a lot of free advice. I barely know her, and I certainly don't like her. Anyway, she stopped at the house yesterday. Princess's eyes widened. I saw a little beat-up white car pull up yesterday. Yeah, that was her. She knocked on the door and asked me to point blank if she could borrow my typewriter. She didn't even say hello, just, do you have a typewriter I can borrow? Well, did you loan her one? I was going to tell her no. I knew she was going to go directly from home to the pawn shop. She's done it before. My mouth was already open to say no when my conscience kicked me in the back of the head. I've had that happen, Princess said sympathetically. I had made myself a promise that I was going to give this conscience thing an honest try. I really meant it, and knew it had brought me happiness so far, so I yielded to it. So what did you do? Princess asked eagerly. Well, I said was that I did have one. I invited her in and went to go get it. I have two typewriters, and I got the better of the two. I actually carried it out of, out to the car for her. It was a... Uh, I was about to ask when she would bring it back when out of my mouth comes... It's an extra machine. You can just have it. Both she and I were amazed. She thanked me and actually smiled before she left. I just stood there in shock, watching my typewriter drive away. You did the right thing, Princess replied with certainty. I know. I was so shocked. And Fred? Fred was furious. He blazed around the house. Here we are, out of work, and I'm giving away valuable things. He was right, and I knew it. It was hard to explain to him why I had done it. Connie, I'm so proud of you. You are truly amazing. It must have been very hard, a very hard, to explain to Fred. Connie snorted. You have no idea. Perhaps I do, Princess chuckled. But you know the odd thing is, Princess? I was about to make up a good excuse to Fred when my conscience butted in again and wanted me to tell him the truth. All of it. Really, Princess replied. What happened? Fred believed me. He listened to my explanation, and he accepted it. I was stunned. I think he was stunned. You can include me on that list, Princess assured her. Then, more seriously, would you mind if I shared something very precious with you? Connie nodded happily. I'd be honored, she said. Princess stood, crossed the room, and returned with a letter-bound copy of the Book of Mormon. She didn't immediately hand it to Connie. I feel like we are good enough friends that I can give you this. I'm not doing this to try to force you to read it. That's really not the point. The point is, this book has brought me lasting joy. This is where the things I've been sharing with you largely come from. I don't feel like I would be a real friend if I didn't give you your own copy. Will you accept it in the same spirit I'm offering it? Connie slowly took the book and turned it so that she could read the title. Her face was expressionless. She lifted the front cover and read a handwritten inscription inside. In Princess's flowing or flowery script it said, To my dear friend Connie, may joy always be the measure of your days. Princess Mahoy. Connie was slow to look up. When she did, her eyes were bright with happiness. I will treasure this book as long as I live, if for no other reason than for what you have written inside the cover. Thank you. Princess beamed. You are most welcome. And, Connie continued a trifle uncertainly, if my conscience tells me to read it, I will. 
I vowed at one time I would never touch this book again, but I am learning so many wonderful things from you, I don't want to place any stupid limitations upon any of it. I can't imagine you doing anything stupid. You haven't known me that long, Connie asserted, then laughed heartily. No sooner had Connie left the house than the phone rang, and it was Sam. I have bad news, he said, without preamble. Oh, dear, what is it? We were broken into last night. Oh, no, by whom? What did they take? Have they been caught? Princess asked in one breath. I don't know. Almost everything. They got away, he replied soberly, answering every question. How did they get past the alarms? Did the alarms even work? They knew how to bypass them, I guess. It looks like a professional job, the police say. Did they get into the safe? Princess asked breathlessly. Yes, but I had taken everything down to the bank vault that evening. They didn't know that, of course. They ruined the safe trying to open it. They used a cutting torch. Can you believe that? They almost burned down the building. The carpet was on fire at one point, and they used our fire extinguisher to put it out. The place is covered in a, a yellow powder. It's awful. Scum-sucking bottom feeders, Princess hissed. It made Sam chuckle with dark humor. They also took the sampler from my desk. Low lifes, she exclaimed. I agree. The sampler alone had about 10,000 R cost, but that's only a fraction of what could have been in the safe had I not taken it to the bank. Sam, we've got to do something. They'll be back. The next time we'll lose even more. Princess, there's something else. They cut a big 22 in the door of the safe. <gasps> Princess gasped. Then in a subdued voice, she added, I wish they had gotten the contents of the safe now. Maybe they'd leave us alone if they did. I know. I had the same thought. Somehow, I still don't think it would be over. Just the same, we have to take some precautions. Some strong precautions. How do they handle security in South Africa? They have 24-hour guards. Not just alarms, but live armed guards. I don't think we need an armed guard, at least at night, Sam agreed. Oh, I do think we need an armed guard, at least at night. I think I know where we can find one, she said with a sudden cheerfulness. I do too, Sam agreed. He had the same idea before he dialed the phone. It pleased him that they were again in sync. Fred resigned from the Alaska State Troopers just as the snow began to fall that year. He resigned before they had completed their investigation. By doing so, they were forced to accept his resignation and leave his retirement intact, since no formal charges had been filed. They chose to simply drop the matter. It was an unexpectedly happy conclusion to a nasty affair. Fred accepted Sam's offer of a job that same day. The pay was much better, the benefits not quite as generous, and the hours abysmal. But Fred was overjoyed. He strode through their offices, making numerous suggestions. They did everything he suggested. He was on guard that next night. When the bank heard that Sam had hired a night guard, they offered to extend Fred's pay, improve his benefits, and add an elaborate lockbox system if he would also patrol the bank below them. He readily agreed. In a short time, he started his own security firm and launched himself into a career that provided handsomely for his family from that day on. It wasn't too long before Sam and Princess subdivided the second home from their property and sold it to Fred and Connie. In addition to being great neighbors and business associates, they became dear friends. Shortly after Fred went to work, Connie knocked on their door. Princess was taking cupcakes from the oven and was slow getting to the door. When she opened it, Connie stood there with a slip of paper in her hand, her face aglow with a childlike look of expression. Without saying a word, she handed Princess the paper. You're pregnant, Princess cried. I am, she replied happily. I think listening to the spirit is to blame for this, she added. They laughed and hugged. Congratulations. Thanks, there's something else I want to tell you, something almost as wonderful. Come in, sit, I'll go get some red bush tea. Hear me out first. Okay, is it that important? It's that wonderful, is all. I'm anxious to hear it, Princess said as she settled in beside her. You remember Angelica, my cousin? The drug addict with your typewriter? Right, well, this is all your fault, you know, Princess laughed. Tell me what I did. You taught me how to listen to the Holy Spirit, and nothing's been the same since. Well, we have two cars, as you know, Fred's Suburban and my Subaru. I kept having this feeling that I should give my Subaru to Angelica. Give it to her? That's your only transportation while Fred's at work. And she's got that little white car. I saw it. Those were my thoughts, too. Anyway, I kept getting this weird impression that I needed to give her my car. This was before you guys hired Fred, and money was a big problem. 
So for a time I ignored it, but it kept getting more insistent. Finally I recognized that I was disobeying, and I reminded myself that every time I obey, I receive wonderful blessings. So I loaded up Freddy, and we drove the Subaru to Tolkitna. That's a long drive. Yeah, it took almost two hours. When we arrived at her apartment, there was no white car outside. She had totaled it weeks earlier. I found her sitting in a filthy little apartment, crying. That's so sad, Princess shook her head. It gets worse, Connie assured her. I just walked up to her and held out the keys to the Subaru. What's this, she asked me. There were tears dried on her face when she hadn't even bothered to wipe them away. Her two kids were crying in the bedroom. I told her, I've bought you, brought you my Subaru. I don't need it any longer. She just stared at me with big, wide eyes. She looked at me like that for the longest time, then just broke down and cried uncontrollably. I held her and held her. It was so pathetic. My heart melted and I cried with her. Connie stopped here to brush tears from her cheeks. Anyway, after she was done crying, I asked her what was, go what was wrong. It was a stupid question because everything in that child's life is wrong. She smiled sadly and told me the most incredible story, Princess. Is it all right if I tell you what she said in her own words? Princess nodded for her to go on. Connie nodded. Angelica said, You know, my life is messed up, Connie. You know I'm a bad person. I do drugs. I neglect my kids. I steal things to pay for this, and I have it. I sleep around for money. What you couldn't have known is that I hate myself, and I hate what I've become. I hate where I'm going with my life. Two weeks ago, I crashed my car. It was my fault. I was high, and I just plowed into someone. I didn't hurt his truck much. I slept with him, and he didn't file a police report, but it ruined my car. My car was my only security in life. It gave me freedom and mobility. I had been cooped up here now for two weeks. My kids are hungry. I'm broke and too beat up to even sell my body for money. In short, I'm at the end of my rope. I have nothing left physically, emotionally, monetarily, or morally. I have been sitting here wishing I could die and lacking the courage to kill myself. Princess gasped, oh no. Connie nodded grimly. It was awful to hear. Then she told me, I didn't get out of bed this morning at, until almost noon. The only reason I did get up was because the kids were crying because they were hungry. I fed them half a bowl of sugar puffs and water. That's all I had. I went back to bed and cried and cried. I cried until I was so depressed that I actually knelt down beside my bed and talked to God. You know me. I'm hard, and I'm defiant, and I'm bad. I ain't prayed to God since my mother last made me when I was six years old. But I prayed. I says, God, I know you're up there, and I ain't never doubted that, but I can't imagine you know I'm alive. God, everyone in my life has walked away from me except you, and I suppose in that case I was the one who did the walking. God, I don't want nothing from you, and I ain't worthy to ask for nothing. But I would like to know something. I would like to know if you are aware I even exist. Oh, Connie, this is depressing, Princess said sadly. Yes, but listen to the rest. Angelica said, That was this morning. I have sat here all afternoon contemplating ways to end my life. If I had a phone, I would have already called the child welfare, pe child welfare people to come take my kids from me. I do love them, I really do, but I'm no good for them. Everyone knows that, even them. So when you walked up to me holding out those car keys, even before you said a word, this flood of warmth and love came over me. Connie paused to wipe a tear. Then, Princess, she stropped, crossed her arms over her chest, and hugged herself. A sad smile on her grimy little face. Angel Angelica's voice was strangled as she said, I've never felt anything like it, and I knew, I just knew in some way deep inside of me that this was my answer. God really does love me, and he really does care. What I felt at that moment was pure love. I've never felt that before from anyone, not even God. Connie's eyes refocused on Princess. I stayed there long enough to pack her and the kids up. I brought them home with me. I may be nuts, but I couldn't leave them there. I bought them food, and they ate like little piglets. You should see those poor little babies. They're skin and bones. Mikey is six and looks three. Thomas is four and looks two. As soon as I got them home, I gave them more food and put Angelica in the bathtub. She just sat there in a daze until the water turned cold. I warmed it up again and bathed her just like a baby. 
Connie paused as if reliving the experience. I've never bathed a grown woman, princess. Connie choked on her words and had to pause. When she continued, her voice was heavy with emotion. Her body was covered with scabs, bruises, and sores. She's been beat up so many times, princess. Her body is absolutely devastated from disease and abuse. Her breasts are bruised. Her arms are black and blue. She's almost skin and bones, and there are needle tracks on her arms and legs. A look of horror, then compassion, crossed Princess's face. Connie's eyes focused far away. She just stood there like a child and let me care for her. She has absolutely no pride left, Princess. Something happened there in that bathroom. I felt love inside me as if I were her mother and she was desperate, my desperately ill daughter. I suppose I felt the way that the father in the scriptures when he placed a robe and gold ring upon his returning prodigal son. I know Connie felt it too. She just stood there and smiled sadly as I attended to her. I was as gentle as I could possibly be, and yet everything I did was painful to her. I believe she is in constant pain and just says nothing because no one cares. Oh, that poor child, Princess exclaimed. I cried the whole time. As I washed her body, I think something was cleansed on the inside too. I dressed her in my best gown and tucked her in my bed. I even kissed her on the forehead and told her I loved her. When I left, she was still sleeping. It was all more tragic and more beautiful than anything I have ever experienced before. Connie was quiet for a long time, then added, I've made arrangements to enroll her in a drug addiction clinic. She's agreed to go and really give it a try. Oh, princess, it's just the most pathetic thing I've ever seen in my life. Believe it or not, she's actually a member of the church, and I've made arrangements for her to meet with Bishop Dowling. She laughed an ironic-sounding laugh. I haven't told you this, but I've been reading the Book of Mormon you gave me. I have a zillion questions, and now I'm going to be teaching Angelica. She needs the gospel desperately. I know the church is true, princess. I think I've known it all along, but was too proud to live it, or too lazy, or something. I don't know, but I do know Angelica needs me to be solid, which I'm not. I need a crash course on religion, princess, and I need to know what times we meet on Sunday. I really need your help, and I'm way in way over my head. And you feel happy inside, Princess appended? Oh, oh yes, Connie replied softly. Sam and Princess invited the missionaries to their home to teach Angelica. Fred and Connie came and listened intently. Because of their deep concern for Angelica's spiritual warfare, welfare, they turned their whole attention to acquiring truth, not filtering it through their own prejudices. They were so cooperative with the missionaries that Angelica probably never realized Fred was not a member, and Connie had never been inside a church in over 20 years. During the fifth discussion, the missionaries asked Angelica if she would like to be baptized after she was able to get her life in order. Angelica answered that she was already a member. An awkward moment of silence followed while the missionary who had asked the question turned red. His companion poked him in the ribs with an elbow, and the room erupted in laughter. When solemnity returned, Sam realized that Fred had not laughed. Fred, Sam asked, is something troubling you? Yes, he answered frankly. I'm grateful that Angelica is taking the missionary lessons and is finding the truth for herself, but I'm not, but I'm the non-member here, and nobody has bothered to ask me a single question. There was a moment of silence while everyone, including Fred, pondered the meaning of his complaint. One of the missionaries started to apologize and to promise to ask Fred more questions, but Sam politely interrupted him. Fred, would you like to be baptized? Well, yes, he almost shouted. Connie turned to him with an expression of total amazement. Fred, she exclaimed, I had no idea you knew it was true, too. Fred fumbled with his hands, then looked directly at his wife. I watched a miracle take place in your life and now with Angelica because of the gospel. I'm stubborn, <laughs> I'm stubborn Connie, but I'm not stupid. I know something good when I see it, and I want to be a part of it. I want to have these miracles as part of my life from now on. Yes, I know it's true. He smiled happily. Don't look so amazed. I'm sorry, honey. It's just that I will... You... I mean, we never... When would you like to be baptized, Sam asked, interrupting Connie, stammering. As soon as it can be arranged, Fred replied forcefully. That would be tomorrow night, the senior of the two missionaries replied. Fred merely nodded and smiled broadly. Melody's life took on a pattern of quietude and security she had never known in her whole life. 
She filled her days practicing, playing in the park, and thinking of Theodore, whom she found a charming enigma. She decided to do a little quiet research and found that his last name, Tennyson, decidedly from the wealthy Tennyson family, very prominent in English and American history. His family proudly wore the status, the title, and the old money that their name endowed upon them. Melody was sitting in her sister's apartment rehearsing a complex passage in a Rimsky-Korsakov work of sweeping minors and intricate rhythms when a firm knock at the door interrupted her concentration. She laid her violin aside and opened the door with some curiosity. Two men in business suits stood officiously before her. Miss Melody McIlvaney, the shorter of the two, asked without an introduction. Yes. He nodded and pulled an official-looking envelope out of his jacket. You are hereby, sir, to appear before the magistrate to answer charges regarding illegal immigration and living in this country with forged papers. We suggest you hire a solicitor, Miss McIlvaney. He can advise you of your rights. Melody was thunderstruck. What? I'm just... Do you intend to appear? The man asked, sparing her the need to reply. Her mind spun in a thousand directions. Only one idea emerged with any clarity. Deny everything. She opened her mouth with these words with her lips, when a quiet urging literally lifted the words from her tongue, even as she forced air through the lips to speak them. Of course, she said quietly. Both men nodded as if satisfied. They turned to leave, when the taller of them turned back as if on an impulse. His face was impassive, his voice apologetic. Miss, it's good you said what you did. We'd have had to arrest you otherwise. Sorry to frighten you, but the department has received a tip from someone very respectable with some very damning evidence. There's an accusation that you may be a spy for the outlawed Rhodesian colony. These are very serious charges, miss. I again suggest you get a very good solicitor, he said. His voice lost all hint of apology. And don't attempt to flee the country. You are under close surveillance. So saying, he touched the rim of his small hat, nodded once, and walked briskly away. Melody consulted the best solicitor she could find in her little town. The old barrister listened to her plight with interest as she explained through tears what had brought her to Wales and then to England and her struggle to obtain papers, then her decision to purchase legality. I understand her decision and the plight that motivated it, he concluded after listening carefully. However, I am sorry to inform you that under English law, the truth of what has occurred is the controlling factor. That a law was broken not why it was broken, is the rule of law. The magistrate will attempt to determine whether the charges are true, and if they are, since they are, there can be no defense. You will be found guilty of those charges and punished accordingly. He leaned back in his chair and pondered for a moment. Even though your motivation for doing what you did has no bearing upon your guilt, it may soften the ultimate punishment. I suspect in the least you will be fined and deported. Melody fell back in her chair crushed and terrified. Her voice was frightened. How much fine? More than you possess, I'm sure. The purpose of the fine is to strip you of all your assets, plus enough to prohibit your return to England. That's the best case? What's the worst case? In the extreme, the court could find you guilty of all charges, including espionage, and sentence you to a very large fine as much as 25 years in prison. 25 years? But I haven't committed espionage. Then all you have to do is prove that you're innocent. How can I prove I'm innocent? There is no presumption of innocence. Oh, is there no presumption of innocence? He raised his chin as if the idea were repugnant to his thinking. The assumption is that you are guilty of what, or you would not be accused. You yourself told me you are guilty of the lesser crimes. God help me, Melody whispered to nobody present. Indeed, God may be your best hope, the old gentleman replied pensively. Sweet peace hovered over Sam and Princess as they prepared for bed. The missionary meeting with Fred and Connie had been precious and spiritual. Both he and Princess rejoiced deeply in Fred's desire to be baptized, and in the blossoming of Angelica's soul. I'm going to go look in on the twins, Princess said as she slipped on a light robe over her nightgown. Sam had just opened his mouth to say he was sure they were fine when they distinctly heard a door bang downstairs. Sam looked at Princess and bolted from the room out onto the landing. The door to their room was directly at the top of the large staircase. Below them, the big front door was wide open, still moving ominously. Princess stifled a scream. Sam ran down the hallway, barely ahead of Princess. The twins 
door was open. Slim, Sam flipped on the light, his heart paralyzed by fear. Both beds were empty. On Bonnie's bed, a dozen stuffed animals had been arranged in a large twenty-two. Princess screamed and ran from the room. Sam spun to follow and was slammed by a sound that seemed to shake the organs within his body. It took his mind a few seconds to realize it was the report of a gun from inside his home. And yep, that is how the book ends. Sweet. 